Tonight's Bible reading is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 7 to 20. Of Jerusalem I fought. Surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge will not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him to shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughters Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Daughter Jerusalem, The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor. In every land where they have suffered shame, at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord.
we've cast the demons out of it. Let's, uh, let's pray. I think we might need to pray first. Less more, worse will happen. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you that technology is working. We pray you'll help us to focus our hearts on you now, uh, that you would speak to us, that, you, that we would come to this passage with a great sense of expectation because we truly believe you're a speaking God and that your word is living, it's alive and active. And when Zephaniah wrote this, though he did not have us in mind, you certainly did. And so as we hear it read today and we preach on it, hear your words that, that you will be speaking in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the book of Zephaniah, and Zephaniah is um, uh, the fourth generation after Hezekiah. He's preaching in the era of Josiah. All this means is that it's around 640 BC through to the early 600s BC. And like all the minor prophets, he's preaching judgment. Not just judgment, but certainly judgment is a big theme of this book. I got thinking a bit about God's judgment, and I got thinking of a trip I did over the school holidays to Townsville with my family. And when we were driving there, we went through a whole stretch of kilometers and kilometers of controlled burning that had taken place that morning. And so it was just ash-filled scrubland on both sides, just nothing alive, still smoke drifting up. And after a few kilometers, it's quite depressing to see this kind of barren, um, barren bushland. After 10 minutes of driving, half an hour of driving, whatever it was, we, we moved through to a section of forest that had been burnt weeks earlier and had received rain since then. And as we looked to the sides, you could see green shoots coming through the darkened ash and uh, stumps growing new life. Uh, it was pretty beautiful. And you realize with all the dead wood gone and all the dead leaves gone, there's space for new life. And with the ash fertilizing the soil, new life grows and is going to flourish in that space. And I think as we get to the book of Zephaniah, it's kind of the feeling of the book. We move through these chapters of judgment, but it's not the whole picture. After judgment, when the fire of God's of wrath, which is how he describes his anger in this, in this book, it's, it's his fire, consuming fire, when it passes, there will be space for new life. And out of, out of the refining process of fire, life will thrive. And so it's, it's judgment, but with great hope of new life. And we're going to spend most of our time, um, like 90% of it, looking at the new life section, just because we've, we've talked about judgment through all the minor prophets so far. So let's just spend two minutes reading some judgment, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time, in the end of chapter 3, thinking about the promise of a new kingdom with new life. But let's hear a summary of the judgment. Uh, chapter 1 is... Judgment against Israel. Chapter 2 is against the nations. Chapter 3 is a bit of both. Let's hear from God. From chapter 3, verse 7 to 8. Of Jerusalem I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble all the nations to gather the kingdoms, to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. There's the image of fire, isn't it? And, and that's the picture that God will summon all people. So this context for the rest of our chapter is all nations, all kingdoms gathered before God. And he is saying, um, wait for me, for I will bring judgment. 
That's because they haven't listened to his warnings. He said, I warned you, I asked you, I corrected you to listen and said, you know, follow me. And you were eager. You were eager to find other ways to rebel. And so we have judgment. But out of judgment, out of the refining process of the fire will come, become purity and life. And so the first point I have of this new kingdom of life is, is it's a kingdom of purification and unification. Let me read Zephaniah 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the... Now I'm just going to pause there. I don't want you to look at your Bible or your phone. I will purify the... How would you finish that? Now, don't yell it out, but if you're a good Christian, been in church a long time, you've probably got some gut reactions where you go. I will purify the minds. I will purify the hearts of the people. I will purify their worship. I will purify their desires. I'll purify the nations. They're the kind of words I think we'd finish that sentence with. I'll purify, I'd probably go hard. It'd be my first pick. But let, let's read, what, what is it exactly that God is going to purify? Then I'll purify the lips of the peoples and all of them who call upon, that all may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Interesting. Lips. I wouldn't have gone there. I don't know if you would have. We heard Zephaniah read, so maybe you, you, you picked it up. But I don't think Australians would naturally think lips are the first thing God needs to purify when he starts his purification process. Because we tend to divorce what we say, and nowadays what we type, um, from ourselves a little bit. We kind of think, you know, just, just words. We're fast and loose. Easy come, easy go with our words. Uh, and yet, that's not the case. It's the thing about apologies, right? You, you have to apologize because you've said something you shouldn't have or you've sent an email you shouldn't have or texted someone you shouldn't have. And so your apology might sound like this. I am so sorry for those harsh words. It wasn't me. It was the weariness from the work. Or you might say, I'm sorry for the blunt email. It's just the busyness that I'm living through. See how we're divorcing a little bit my words from who I am? You might say, I'm so sorry that I hurt you with those comments. It wasn't me. You knew me. I don't talk like that. Or you say, you know, sorry for the voicemails at two in the morning. That was not me. That was the alcohol talking. The, the point being, you divorce. It's not my experience. You, div <laughs> you divorce the, the kind of words from your heart. I say those things, but it's not representative of who I am. Yeah, it's interesting. When it comes to the Bible, it's the other way around. God says, if I want to know who you are, I just, I just listen to you. Your words are absolutely who you are. They're a portal into your heart. Uh, in 2021, a judge in America, uh, Judge Zimmerman, was standing in an empty courtroom with one other man, and he was discussing some of the cases going through the court at the time, and one of the cases was for Kevin Peterson, who is an African-American who'd been shot and was now taking the police to court. And as he's having this conversation, he used racial slurs of, of Peterson and said he's just out for money, he's out for a payday, he just woke up with cash signs in his eyes and, and used... Some pretty derogatory terms. It's a pretty ugly conversation. But he thought he was having it with one other person. Except the empty courtroom still had its YouTube channel broadcasting. And so that conversation was actually, well, for all people to listen to. Now, what happened in the end was he was forced to resign. And you might think, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? I mean, who hasn't done a pocket call and then wondered later, what did I leave on that person's voicemail? I know I've done that plenty of times. Surely that's not grounds. You know, it's just a YouTube pocket call. It's not grounds for being, you know, resigning from being a judge. But you go, well, it's nothing to do with YouTube, is it? The issue was that conversation was a window into the judge's heart, which is full of prejudice and racism. That's why he, has, he resigned. 
because of what he was saying. That's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, it's actually your words which allow us to see into your heart. It's like a warning light on the car. Problem is, I guess we mostly ignore our warning lights on our cars, dashboard. I do, speaking for myself here. Lou's nodding too. At least two of us ignore those warning lights. But that's like it with our words. Our words are a warning light on the dashboard of our spiritual life. Is, are we going to take heed? And Jesus, in, in Luke 6, was so blunt about this. Luke 6, 43 to 45. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from a thorn bush or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil from the evil things stored up in his heart. For the, man, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So figs come from what type of tree? Figs. Fig tree, that's right. Yeah, we got there. Grapes come from? Grape trees. Grape trees. Grapevines. That's right. And so we kind of know the, the really clear logic. It's so obvious, isn't it? Uh, the fruit will tell you what the tree is. And the tree will give you one fruit. They go together. The, why is it so often we, we think, well, why, you know, we, we, we're not surprised, though. We should be. When, when someone has ungodly speech... He calls himself a Christian. Because what's Jesus teaching? Ungodly speech comes from what, from what kind of heart? An ungodly heart. That's the bluntness of Jesus' message. Unchristian speech comes from what kind of person? A non-Christian. If I want to be as, as crass as that. Out of, the, out of the heart, someone speaks. And so it's kind of a shocking reality for us in, in the West, who often probably speak loosely and quickly, that God is measuring us by our words. So what do you do if you're feeling uncomfortable, thinking about all the things you typed out and your, you know, your rage as a keyboard warrior at like 11.30 at night or your conversations which are full of stuff you wish no one at church would hear? What do you do if you think your words don't line up with your heart? Should you just bite your tongue and sit on your hands? Yes, <laughs> that's part of it. You should. You should refrain from saying things you shouldn't and you should not type things out you shouldn't. But that's not the whole story, is it? Because... God, in this passage, is saying he will purify. He's at work purifying. And he does that with us. He gives us his spirit, which will give spiritual fruit, the fruits of the spirit, which will take our words from being harsh to gentle, impatient to patient, from unkind to kind, from mean to loving. And so if you feel like you aren't someone with good godly words, ask God to work in your heart, and that his spirit would purify you. And from the inside out, that purity would begin. And so as you, as you speak, you would speak words that are pure. Of course, what's the best thing we can do with our mouths? We can pray. That's where we go here. They all may call on the name of the Lord. We can pray. We can do other things. We can worship. And that's exactly where Zephaniah will go later in the passage. But this is a new kingdom of purity. Pure lips, pure words, pure hearts, and God is the one helping us in that place. It's also a kingdom of unification. Remember, this is all about the nations gathering and hearing God. And so when he says they'll serve shoulder to shoulder, or literally in the Hebrew, with one shoulder, we don't really use that idiom. Our idiom would be shoulder to shoulder. It's all people together. Verse 10, for from beyond the river Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. Now, I don't think Zephaniah had any idea how God would do that, but we do. 
through Christ, who'd bring all nations together and make them his people. So purification comes through Christ, and, and unification comes through Christ. That's the kind of kingdom it is. It's also a kingdom for the humble. Um, again, let me read. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrong things you've done to me, because I will remove from you. Now, how would you finish that? You've done all these wrong things, and God says, I will remove from you. I would be thinking sin. That's why you won't have shame, because I'll remove all the sin from you, all the selfishness, all the wickedness, all the idolatry. I'll remove all the idolatry from you. That's my gut reaction when I see the start of that sentence. But that is, that's not where God goes. How is this new kingdom built? What is he doing? How does salvation come? Because I'll remove from you your arrogant boasters. Wow, salvation comes as we remove the arrogant. That's kind of not what I expected. Never again will the haughty be on my holy hill. I'll leave with you, within you, the meek and humble, the remnant of Israel, who will trust in the name of the Lord. When I started preaching, I was given the instructions, how do, you know, if you want to preach a great sermon, it's really simple. Simply write a sermon and cut everything that isn't great, and you're left with a great sermon. I think my first sermon draft was like three minutes after I cut everything. How do you create a great kingdom? Well, God here said, what does he say? He says, I, I create a kingdom and I cut out everyone who thinks they're great. And then what I'm left with is a humble kingdom. Problem is, we often think we're great. And the firm warning here is God's kingdom is not for the self-made, self-centered, the self-righteous, the selfish. It's made for the humble and the meek. It's the humble and meek which are blessed with the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? The humble and meek will have the kingdom of God. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Sermon of the Mount, the very beginning, begins with the Beatitudes. That's exactly what he says. Blessed are those poor in spirit, Matthew 5, verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a really challenging section of the Bible. And I think for me, the place where I think has been the most helpful is actually Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew. It's an old book now, but I thought his chapter on this is amazing. And I want to read a few paragraphs from it as he thinks about how radical this is for us in the West to hear, how utterly countercultural it is for us. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the book first, and then I'm going to read the notes I, I copied out. He says this, Along the way, I've come to believe that the Beatitudes describe the present as well as the future. They neatly contrast how to succeed in the kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom of this world. J.B. Phillips rendered the Beatitudes that would apply to this world. So these are the Beatitudes by our world. Happy are those who hustle, for they will get into the world. Happy are the cynical, for they'll never, they'll never let life hurt them. Happy are those who complain, because they'll get their way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry about their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are those who are knowledgeable of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Modern society continues to say, live by the rule, survival of the fittest. 
The one who dies with the most toys wins, reads one bumper sticker. So then, so does the nation with the, mo the best weapons and the largest gross national product. The owner of the, of the Chicago Bulls, Jerry Reindorf, he gave a compact summary of the rules governing the visible world on the occasion of Michael Jordan's retirement, temporary retirement. He's living the American dream. And the American dream is to reach a point in your life where you don't have to do anything you don't want to do and you can do everything you want to do. That may be the American dream and the Australian dream, but that's decidedly not Jesus' dream as revealed by the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes express quite plainly that God views the world through a different set of lenses. Various scenes in the Gospels show the kind of people that Jesus is impressed by. A widow placing her last two coins in the offering. A dishonest tax collector so riddled with anxiety he climbed up a tree to get a better view of Jesus. The nameless nondescript child. A woman with a string of five unhappy marriages. A blind beggar. An adulteress. A man with leprosy. Strength Good looks, connections, and the competitive instinct may bring success in a society like ours, but those very qualities may block entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Dependence, sorrow, repentance, and a longing to change. These are the gates to the kingdom of God. It's helpful, isn't it? As someone who always grew up wanting to succeed and, and achieve great things, it's a good rebuke for me to hear that. It's not those who have great views themselves, but great views of God who end up in God's kingdom. So how would you know if you're not humble? One way to check is just, is your prayer life? What kind of prayers do you pray? Do you pray? If you don't pray, it's a sign you don't think you need God. If you do pray, are your prayers more like, God, why aren't you helping me achieve my great plans? You know, where have you been? Why am I suffering? Or are your prayers more humble, like, God, lead me in your plan. Use me as you will. Glorify yourself through me. But the kingdom of God is not for the proud. It's only for the humble. It's the humble kingdom. So it's a pure and unified kingdom. It's a humble kingdom. It's a kingdom of singing. Verse 14 to 17. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day... They'll say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. And so punishment's over and the party begins. Restoration has come. And uh, there's this beautiful image isn't it, of rejoicing people. Now, when does this happen? Well, I don't think it happens in the Old Testament. And I think if we remember Joel, we had the book of Joel at the start of our series, Joel helps us understand the timing of all the minor prophets because Joel gets quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost and says, this is the day of the Lord right now. It's happening right now and will happen until Jesus returns. And so I think this starts now. We rejoice and sing now and we'll sing even more when Jesus returns. So we will sing in church and then we'll sing for eternity. Not constantly, I don't imagine, but we'll do a lot of singing in the new creation. And singing is so powerful. It's always been a powerful part of the Christian life. Um, in many ways, when we sing, it starts deep in our hearts, doesn't it? Like a really good worship song or a hymn. It kind of reverberates in our hearts and our souls and eventually into our vocal cords. And we just can't help but, but lift our voices and sing it. And uh, here are th kind of three songs that um, I really loved singing um, that affected me in my life. I, obviously, heaps of worship songs have affected me. But here's three. No other service 
you could even recognize one of them, but maybe you will. I don't have much hope, but let's go. I'm going to sing it to you. I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Let's keep going. So I will call on your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When the oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours and you are mine. Song is? Wow. Thank you. It is. Hillsong. This one was my favorite song of last year, Super Obscure, but uh, I just loved it. Listen to it and repeat. Uh, an old hymn. There's the hint. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd friend. Leaving riches without number. Born within a cattle store. This the everlasting wonder. Christ was born, the Lord of all. Come thou long expected Jesus with the uh, 1970s Mark Hunt version. I know, obscure. But I love that. I love those lyrics. Our Redeemer, shepherd friend. Last one. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction. Land me safe in Canaan's side. Songs of praises. Songs of praises. I will ever sing to thee. I will ever sing to thee. Anyone know it? Guide me, O the great Jehovah. Great hymn. Had it at our wedding, actually. This image of God will guide you as a pilgrim to the barren land. I'm sure you have a whole playlist on Spotify full of worship songs you love. And uh, we sing to God because in our hearts we are so thankful. But here's the incredible news of Zephaniah. Kind of mind-blowing news of Zephaniah. God sings over us. Isn't that incredible? Like we, we enjoy singing to God. Then I'm mowing the lawn singing to God. And God's singing over me. The God of creation is delighting in his heart. Lyrics are bubbling up and he can't help but sing over me and you. Zephaniah reads this. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he'll no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you with singing. What would that sound like? Well, this is what John Piper reflects. Who could imagine what it would be like to hear God singing? Remember that merely spoken words were used and he created the universe, brought it into existence. What would happen if God lifted his voice and not only spoke but sang? Perhaps at the end, the new, create, new heavens and the new earth would be created as God exalts over his people with loud singing. When I think of the voice of God singing, I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an east coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun, 865,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than Earth, and nothing but fire, million degrees. And yet, at the same time, it is like a warm, crackling fire in the living room on a cozy winter's night. When I hear the singing, I stand, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, speechless, that he would sing over me. He is rejoicing over my good with all his heart and all his soul. Can you feel the wonder of this today, that God rejoices over you with loud singing? Great quote. Great thing, isn't it? God is rejoicing over you with loud singing. Now, how can we not come to church and want to sing loud when God is singing over us? So, Purified, unified kingdom. 
uh, a humble kingdom, a singing kingdom, and lastly, a kingdom of rescue and restoration. Let me read the last three verses. And as I read them, I want you to count how many times God says, I will. You've jumped the gun there, Paul. Just, I'm glad you don't ruin my jokes. Um, hint, it's eight times. <laughs> Let me read. I will remove you from all, I'll remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden reproached for you. At the time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. I will I, I, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amazing, isn't it? It's just three verses, eight times. God says, I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. I will do that. Twice, he says, I will give you praise and honor which is incredible, but again, he's a singing God who sings over us. You know, in our life, we are so busy doing things, aren't we? Uh, we, are, we are doing, we're studying, we're working, we're achieving, we're cleaning, we're cooking, we're, we're parenting. We're doing, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing, and we get to this section, and how much doing is required in our salvation? None. Zero. God says, I will. Eight times, I will do it. I'll do all the heavy lifting. I'm going to do all the work. You just need to trust and rest in me. And that is so helpful, isn't it? In a world where it's so easy to be weary from the constant doing, we don't have to do anything for our salvation. God does it all. We just trust in him. That's really, really powerful, really beautiful, and allows me to slow down. God is big enough. I can trust him. My favorite phrase there is when he says, and I'll bring you home. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Sydney for a few nights um, at the MTS Leaders Conference, and I started missing my family, as you'd expect, and the kids were missing me, and Emma was too, and, and then you turn your eyes from the conference to getting home, and it feels like time slows down as you have to commute, everything slows down, everything, you know, just queuing up, drop your bag off, queuing up for security, and then dragging by the time in the airport. Eventually, though, suddenly I'm standing there, and the X-Trail is pulling in at the public pickup, and the kids are beaming in the back seat. And Emma's helped me get the bag in the boot. And she says those two words, welcome home. And it feels so right. I wonder, what is the most homesick you've ever been? When is the, cast your minds, the, the period of time where you're most aching to be home? And when it ended, and someone you love, no doubt, greeted you and said, welcome home. See, I think those moments are a taste of what's going to come. And one day I'm going to close my eyes on this earth, and the next time I open them, I'll be looking at the new creation. And I'll be welcomed by my joyful, rejoicing, singing Savior. And he's going to welcome me with those two words, welcome home, the day that he brings me home. And the greatest welcome we have here, that moment is just a taste, I think, of what it's like when you make it to the kingdom of heaven. And God will do it. And that's the point. We have such confidence because this whole section is about what God will do. He will purify he will look after us. He will do all this for us. And I love how the book ends. It just ends with the words, says the Lord. This huge chunk of promises and it says, says the Lord. Full stop. Book's finished. Because if God says he'll do it, he's going to do it. And so one day he will call us home. And we'll sing in eternity with him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this book. And we thank you that you, uh, that you judge sin 
but that through judgment on the cross particularly, we see new life sprouting. And we see it through Christ as he starts this new kingdom. Father, we, we pray that you would purify our hearts and our tongues, that we would build people up, that we'd be a, ch- a church family that's full of encouragement and love and not gospel ridicule. Uh, may we be people who use our lips to pray often and sing constantly to you. Father, we pray that we'd be a unified people. And Father, we ask that you'd humble us, help us not to be proud, for we know no proud people make it to your kingdom. Help us to be humble and meek and, and desperate for you. And Father, we pray that we'd be a rejoicing people, that when we sing songs in church, they would be loud. When we sing songs in the car, they'd be loud because we are rejoicing people because you rejoice over us. And Father, we thank you that you, you are the one who restores and rescues, that we do not need to do the hard work, that you do it all for us. And may we be a trusting people and trust in you. And until the day either Christ returns or you bring us home, we ask that you glorify yourself through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.